Welcome to the Age of Audio. My name's Graham Brown from the award-winning podcast agency Pickle & Co. The Age of Audio is a series of conversations with thought leaders and changemakers in the world of audio. That's podcasts, radio, and social audio, converging with big data to create engaging and authentic content for a new generation of listeners. So what I want to know, like from the top is you were in not just podcasts, but also media and media sales for the longest time. So how has that evolved? If you can take us right back. So where did you get your start in media and media sales? And, and if we start at that point in the journey and look at what are the similarities and differences with podcasts today? So maybe we can start at the beginning in sure. media sales. So what was your start there? Yeah, I'll give you the abbreviated because I think it'll tie back to um, the passion point for you know, from my perspective of being a marketer and on the sales side, but for representing content. So I started um, by accepting a job to move out to the West Coast um, in, in digital ad sales at what was AOL or America Online at the time. So um, we were a team based out of Santa Monica that was, you know, building sponsorships around content that was largely on AOL at first at local and then national level. So I like to think of it as the first sort of journalistic content that was, you know, aggressively coming on board along with, um, you, you know, the many great and, and, and still to this day, uh, journalists at the newspapers, right? Mm. So if you think all the way back to America Online, people sometimes forget that a, now a great podcaster like Bill Simmons was originally writing for America Online out of Boston. That's how he got his start on what it was our local content, which was digital cities. So I began my career building sponsorships around that content, first at the local level, a little bit unsexy, but a lot of fun, saying, hey, we've got a local newspaper, it's online, and you're the biggest Toyota dealer in town. You need to be on here, right? You're all over everything else. And sort of doing that hands on the, you know, well, basically out in the field sales and then moving into more larger national brands, a lot of banks and, you know, things like that, that we would build out around the content. And that content was both local and national. And, and it was sort of the first start of what today is all of a sudden on our phones and everywhere around us in terms of like, you know, content for business, content for news, you name it. Cool. So you really were, I guess in the early, I mean, my background was sales. So, you know, my start in business was, you know, having the list, picking up the phone, doing the calls. I had a boss that would tell me, uh, you can do as, as, as many calls as you like, as long as you don't leave the office before you did 120 a day. So, you know, that was the, that was the sort of environment that we were. We just had to pick up the phone, make those calls. But in those days, it worked, right? So, yeah. you know, it wasn't particularly, you know, advanced in technology like we have today. But that's kind of how we learned our trade. I'm wondering what that sort of taught you. I mean, do you think there are lessons in that kind of, you know, approach in sales that you still sort of think about and affects what you do today? I think so. I think that um, you make a really good point about the human connection and how it was sort of the foundation of selling what was somehow 20 plus years ago and how sometimes today 
that gets lost. And I do now run a sales team and I'm always reminding them, you know, there is lots of different data points that we can provide them and details about the shows, but let's keep in mind the, the human connection here. Like mm. what is the, there's a person that's purchasing the sponsorship and like what, what is motivating them? Like what, what are the motivations beyond, you know, the very basic elements that we mm. need to learn. And sometimes we are not going to learn that unless we have a conversation with them. And that takes a more nuanced tone today because there is a lot of motivation and I totally understand it because I do it as well um, to be on email, right. Mm. And to solve this through the, the narrative word. And I, I absolutely believe in having good writing skills and figure, but we, we need to still make that connection to people to kind of understand some of the, the human elements around what is the decision-making? Well, what concerns do you have about brand safety? You know, hmm. what things are you listening to? Cause we know that that'll impact the decisions they make about what they want to buy. And, um, Sometimes I think the team can forget that and I'll say, hey, we need to be doing, for example, we need to be doing quarterly calls, you know, with the entire team of like our strategic partners. And once, once, once we really kind of put laid those rules in place, like I think everybody enjoys the human connection. They just mm. kind of forget that they enjoy it. That makes any sense. No, no, it makes complete sense. So yeah. what is that pitch effectively like for a podcast to a buyer? How, how is it? pitched successfully. I mean, obviously it's evolved and in the early days we didn't have the numbers, did we? And now right. you have the numbers. Is it like a, just a comparison of numbers? This is what you get on Facebook ads. This is what you'll get on podcasts. This is what you get in print. Or is there a qualitative difference that really sells the podcast above and beyond those other sort of competitive channels? So I do need to lean into like the the day-to-day -day of what we're doing at Cast Media. And so Cast Media, um, you know, 40 plus premium shows, you know, reaching 13 million um, listeners slash viewers. They tend to be shows in, in many cases because we're focused on bigger shows that have a um, – that have a personality and we, we really do focus on host driven shows. So specific mm. to your question, you know, we are talking about the influence of this host and the audience slash listenership that they've built. And then, you know, really trying to dive into like that connection they have with the audience, who they are and what they represent and what expertise, whether it be an expertise in politics or um, comedy. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and usually, you know, that host, has elements about their personality and authenticity that really provides for a strong endorsement. And so it's, it's, it's really leaning into that and it's history repeating itself um, is what I sometimes remind my team, because when I worked at iHeart, you know, one of the most profitable divisions at iHeart is premier radio networks, which is their host driven hmm. network within what is, you know, a, the largest audio you know, media company in the world. Right. And that is still, I, I let them speak to check their numbers, but I know it was one mm. of the most profitable um, when I left in 2018, I doubt that's changed. And so, you know, that endorsed messaging and that host authenticity is a premium product. And we need to sort of educate around what you're getting with the show, what you're getting with the host and how, how that messaging is in my experience, the most powerful media vehicle that I've ever represented. I mean, I've, I've sold out of home, video, mm. t 
TV, print, you name it, right? But I'm telling you that host endorsement and messaging in a podcast, which has, you know, no offense to broadcast radio, a little less ad load in it Hmm. has been the most impactful ROI vehicle that I've ever sold in Hmm. my entire career. yeah, I mean, you look at some of the the shows that you have. You have people like Sarah Silverman, for example. They've got audiences. They have their followers, right? So you, exactly. you they're ready made, aren't they? In that situation, how does that work? Do you go to the talent and pitch an idea for a show, or do they come to you? Where does that normally start? Who's got the idea in that process? So that's a that's a great question because it really does depend. From show to show. So let's, we'll, we'll dive into Sarah briefly. So argumentatively, Sarah is probably one of the most successful female comedians mm. and, you know, built up her career, I would say, during a time where there weren't as many of those of her level female comedians, right? I mean, there's been many incredibly talented women, but she's really jumped to the, to the mm. top in this, that stand-up comedian and really built quite a career. So she's got an understanding and, and some people that she partners with to understand what she wants some of her storytelling to be. So for there, we're kind of there with her and we're helping her craft the show, but she's also doing a lot of it on her own with her own ideation and based on her background of success. So that's sort of a, a complementary partnership that mm-hmm. we enter into, which is different from you know, an original series like The Opportunist, which is a new narrative series that we're creating where we've, we've, we've built up this story um, and done all the research in-house with our employees. And we're, you know, we're basically own the original IP and we're crafting that story from scratch, right? Mm. And so we're hiring what we think are the best people and we're developing that story from the very beginning, doing the research, every aspect of it. So we're mm. more involved in every aspect and we're more collaborative in a case like a Sarah Silverman where she has an idea of what she's looking to do and we need to help her be knowledgeable about what works in the podcast space. Mm-hmm. So there's different la- layers depending on when someone's kind of entering in and who they are and what kind of sort of understanding they already have because Sarah brought some audience with her too. Mm-hmm. I want to come back to that host ROI in a minute because I think it's such an important point that people don't really think about it as well. let's talk a little bit about formats. So you've got these narrative formats, you've got these host-led shows as well. And the way I see the US, especially in the West Coast, it's it's a much more advanced market than any market. It's not just in terms of the formats, but the media as well, um, the advertising networks. And I guess one's driving the other as well. That in other markets, especially here in Asia, we've got 4 billion people, yet most of the formats tend to be and excuse me for being blunt, it tends to be man speaks to man, you know, and right. it's it, it's kind of very dry. It's often starting with a question of what do I want to talk about as opposed to what does the listener want? That sort of format, that man speaks to man, that got us everybody, everybody started in podcasting. Does that work still? I mean, is there a space for that or is what you're doing now kind of like the second evolution of podcast, you know, if you go back to the AOL days, you know, it's like AOL was the starter or Netscape. Right. And now we're sort of, okay, we're beyond that now. Now we're sort of at the next phase. What are you seeing? I, I hope this, because I want, I, first of all, I want to say, I still, I still enjoy broadcast radio, but I guess the messaging is 
that mess that sort of format still does work because that's a lot of broadcast mm. radio, both in the United States and elsewhere. Man versus man, uh, politics, sports, mm. right? News, like very here's your through line, right? And there's still, you know, a, a multi-billion dollar business driven by listenership enjoying those very sort of simplistic formats still happening in broadcast radio. So I think that still, Mm. I think that still works. I think what we are experiencing and what you're diving into is obviously I think in my own estimation, podcast is that next evolution Mm. of audio, right? Like we're, we're finding all these different categories. I mean, just look at rewatchable podcasts for fan bases for the many shows that have now ended that people love Mm. and that's wonderful because there are these large fan bases and they weren't done. And now you can bring back stars from the shows and that's, it's a healthy way for people to have escapism and reconnect with the shows. And then they, they kind of cover off beyond the shows and talk about things in society and culture. And I think that's an evolution. I think the, the storytelling in true crime, I don't think we're where we will be. I think there's probably more storytelling mm. beyond true crime. It's just hard to, you know, it's like horror movies. Like, hey, once they work, people keep making them. <laughs> but I think, you know, I do think we're going to find, I mean, investigative journalism. Mm. I know that I've been very scared about what has occurred, you know, in our, with journalism and some of the health of our local newspapers across you know, not just the U.S., but overall, right? But mm. this investigative journalism that we're seeing, another new age of audio. So I'm super excited about, you know, what we're doing to provide more than what the basics are mm. in audio that I think you touched on that are, are still are still basically, what's the word? We'll call them tent poles. But I think yeah. these people that are invo- enjoying audio in those tent poles, they're going to be like, oh, wow. You know, I mean, my mom is in her 70s. And she has now found all these different offshoots of like politics and, Mm. you know, investigative stories. Um, And I think that more people will continue to enjoy this, this sort of next stage of what is, you know, great content, um, great journalistic outlets for people um, that we need great journalists and they're doing it. Now they're just doing an audio. I'm excited about that. Mm. Me too. And back to the host ROI part that, Let's say I'm a brand. Let's say you pick any brand. Like it could be, you know, let's say it's a Budweiser, um, but you know, AB and Bev or any kind of, um, you know, heavy advertiser by nature. That if I was looking at podcasts, uh, their challenges. I think what these brands realize is actually they don't have audiences. You know, they they really don't, and I think that's kind of interesting. Is that they have to effectively you know, I'd say rent or buy or leverage somebody else's audience and hence the hosts as well. So if, if I was a brand facing this challenge of deciding what I'm going to do with my budget for a podcast, because, you know, let's explore, let's try this out. I have on the one hand, a host led show, you know, I find a host whose talking points and messages match are on brand with us and their audience, et cetera, et cetera. The second one is I can do, you know, I could commission a series and brand it like Steve's bring back Bronco for Ford, right? Or I could do, you know, okay, I'm going to get my marketing director to speak to my VP of, you know, growth or whatever about our latest products, which is very rudimentary early stage. Or I can simply just advertise in other people's podcasts, right? Yeah. Um, 
I got so many choices and now that's getting difficult for me. Is there an obvious starting point? I know it's going to be an it depends answer, but generally in those, what, what, what's the most effective? Yeah, it's a good question. I think when we talk about, well, you mentioned like, let's loop back to um, ROI and host red ads. I mean, one of the things that makes for a good sponsorship is, you know, an authentic read. And I think for the brand, you have to be honest with, you know, your brand, like, who are you, right? Like, so Ford Bronco, there's a lot of excitement about that brand. There's a lot of legacy. I think it lends itself to an opportunity to tell a longer form story. Mm. Uh, and so you can lean into that channel of like, you know, people, I mean, my buddy had a convertible 1988 giant Ford Bronco and outside of gas mileage sitting in the back of that thing in a giant Bronco that also was a convertible was a cool thing. So mm. I'm interested in more Bronco knowledge, right? Based on my history. Whereas I think it's one of these, you know, when you're faced with it as a brand, like your, I don't know, let's just say Coors Light. Okay. Is there enough stories about Coors Light to dive deep in the history of Coors Light? I'm not mm. saying there isn't. It mm. doesn't necessarily feel the same way. So it feels like in that case, I have a friend who always drinks Coors Light on the golf course. Mm. He drinks craft beer. He also drinks Coors Light. I, if I'm a Coors Light marketer, I think about if we're going to move in a podcast and we're thinking about host ads, is there a way for us to find people that, you know, are known and have audiences that really believe in Coors Light? Mm. And if so, let's dial into that because mm. there are a lot of them out there mm. um, and they are well-known and a bunch of them are probably podcasters. How can we, how can we tailor into that? And maybe that's more fun to be had but in in a shorter segment, right? Mm. Because the brand is you you just want to try that affinity, you know, the affinity to that brand and a known person or show, and it makes more sense that way. So maybe that was a too long of an answer, but I think it's just being honest about mm. where you think your brand are, is and how would it fit. Mm. And not not every brand fits in every particular slot, right? Mm. Branded podcast host reds versus just targeting the audience of podcast overall and letting them know that maybe you're doing something that would be something that podcast listeners would have a passion for, whether yeah. it be, you know, a brand that's helping support climate protection mm. from mm. climate change. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, because yeah. we, you know, it's got to be authentic, right? It's got to have that. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's not, it doesn't always come easily for brands, right? No. But um, I don't know if you heard the Dungeons and Daddies podcast, Mike. It's my sort of favorite at the moment. I'm not a role player, but I've just kind of been turned on to this by somebody else I was chatting to about this. And they said, you've got to check this out. And okay. it's like, it's five middle-aged guys. Well, it's four guys and one woman, right? And they do this live role play. Oh my uh, gosh. And you're talking about the next genre. Like you should check this out, right? These guys are making 170,000 a month from Patreon donations, right? Wow. They've got 12,000 subscribers. And the funny thing is that their website is like AOL era website. It's like, yeah. you know, somebody knocked that thing up. I'm surprised it doesn't have like the gray background and the blue borders and, you know, on the, on the images, but I'll, I'll ping it to you. These, they've got a whole page of host reads. And they've done it like in their sort of acting style. So, you know, it's not just like, okay, I've got to get through this. It's obvious that this is an advertiser. They've acted them out. Like, oh, you wow. know, they were like role-playing with the characters and stuff. So they've got like Honda on there and they're just kind of acting this thing out and laughing about it. Because like one guy's a comedian, you got one from media. 
But I, I love the format and I think that that's so honest and yeah. it's so authentic in terms of advertising because you know, the brand has to go in there and say, right, okay, you're going to rip this apart, but that's what the audience are going to click with, right? If you allow yourself to be a little bit more humanized. Yeah, it's an awesome example. You should check it out. It's very fun. It's well produced as well. I and, will. I will yeah, definitely will. 12,000 paying subs is certainly something to you know, pay attention to. But I saw, I mean, you know, when you're talking about, you know, going on beyond true crime, that um, Jeff Goldblum has uh, been roped into a Dungeons and Dragons podcast, a different one called Dark Dice. And so he's going to be a character on it. And it's going to be, I don't, I don't think it's going to be scripted, but it's part scripted, right? And so he's going to be this character in this campaign. That, so feels like good ca- that feels like good casting to me, right? You reckon? <laughs> right? That just feels right. But Jeff Goldblum was a character. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> He's some ma- magician. Was. I don't know what it is. Like, I don't know the language they use, but I just thought it was awesome. Like, his age, his audience. Like, I mean... He's, for, he, he's obviously popular with an age group, right? You know, he was, if you go back to the 80s and 90s, I mean, he's still going now, but they thought they know who their audience is. They know who they're targeting. And yeah. I was looking at data, tabletop games. They, like the, they're saying that they've 25% increase in sales in the last year. Not because of this, but because of the pandemic, right? Sure. It's a source sure. of, I think, you know, that's a potential niche underserved market so you know like you've got a really highly aligned and defined audience of middle-aged guys who are spending money on crap basically they're not spending (laughs) it on bikes and golf clubs they're spending on tabletop games i thought it was awesome so i think that might hold a little bit too though we'll see how that plays out but i can see the human element in the families and the tabletop, we'll see what happens, mm. but I'll be interested to see if, um, you know, I heard that bikings, you know, outdoor, just regular bikes sales mm. soared in the pandemic. Absolutely. I wonder if there's going to be, it'll be interesting to see what the holding patterns are mm. um, because I think we're going to see some, right. Humans are creatures of habit for both bad and good, mm. but then, you know, forming new habits, some of these, what I would guess are good you would think that they would hold and stay. Mm. I guess we'll, we'll have to no, watch over the next year. Yeah. Because we're all spending time talking about whether we're going to go back into work or not. But there are these other things we used to do yeah. or change from what we used to do. And those will be interesting to watch too. Absolutely. Well, let's be positive. Um, my last question to you then is just about audience growth. Because I think everybody is struggling with this at the moment. That, you know, there was a time when you could do a podcast and get an audience in the same way you used to be able to publish a book and find readers and self-publish but it changed like everybody got on board you look at the numbers now like 2x million um, podcasts mm-hmm. out there and i think you know now you've got network models um, evolving so networks are forming in the same way that radios used to you know aggregate content if you like and then you've got people looking at how do we build communities for our podcast or what do you see that's working? Cause we've got, we've got to go beyond the, Oh, let's make an audiogram and share it on social media to grow audiences. Right. Well, what's working yeah. from your side? What are you seeing that's interesting and who's doing interesting stuff? So it's, it is a difficult, you know, it's a difficult answer and a challenging question. Um, we do benefit by being a network and that we can promote our shows, but promoting shows to the wrong audience certainly doesn't work very well. So we have to promote within our network to 
shows we think are are like. But the more interesting answer to the question would be, I think, you know, one of the things we've been looking at is really making sure we sort of look beyond what people are doing well, which is, okay, let's go find podcast listeners. Let's trade our shows for other shows inventory and market, you know, our new podcast on other podcasts that we think are sort of like, um, which does work. Um, it works quite well. But there are other things that, you know, that are opportunities that you can look at. I'll, I'll give you one, for example, that I think that there's more to be done there. So we talked about audio and show creation and, you know, moving beyond true crime. And there's all these different passion audiences out there. You know, we have a, a new podcast. We, uh, we launched Friendship Onion. It's the two gentlemen that were in Lord of the Rings franchise and it's not just a rewatchable, but of course they're going to bring back many, you know, many in that in the cast from the movies. Uh, we reached out and did some marketing through Reddit and all those communities related to those franchises, and said, "Hey, you know, we're we're launching, you know, a, a new podcast." And we saw a lot of flow from that. Um, I think the other thing that gets under noticed, and it's not it's not earth shadowing, but like making sure that you're helping your shows with guesting guesting, mm -hmm. you know, with authenticity on other shows, but there are vehicles out there like Reddit, right. And guesting on other podcasts, but, you know, other things to sort of create the messaging beyond the world of hoping and begging for Apple or Spotify to promote your show. Right. Like that's, mm -hmm. that's more of a wishing well in some cases than it is mm -hmm. a strategy. Right. And no disrespect to those companies. You know, they have a lot of people coming at them. I just think the examples of like, looking at what a show's audience is, you know, looking at ways to cross promote in the podcast space and then expanding beyond that. And I don't just mean, Hey, post it on social and looking at these sort of things like Reddit that are blossoming and trying those vehicles now mm. to look for those audiences. Yeah. I think Reddit, Reddit's a great, great example. Yeah. Um, it's a tough one though, isn't it? You have to, you can't go on Reddit and like be a newcomer and post something because they'll just bury you. You yeah. have to be part of the community. So it, there are no shortcuts here, really, which I think is the key part. You've got to know your audience and grow with them and work with these communities. It's a challenge. But I remember in 2017, I was in a meeting and, you know, the thing came, it was a corporate meeting. Um, I won't reveal which company because I've been at a few, but it was like, okay, well, can't we buy listens? Mm. And the nice, the nice answer as I look back is no, you, you can't just... It's not like the digital where you just go buy clicks. I hope it doesn't become that, right? Mm. I hope there isn't, you know, a way that you could go buy listens. But right now, you cannot. Mm. And so, at least you've got this authenticity to the audience that's are building in podcasts. Sometimes that makes for a hard, you know, revenue um, build when certain brands are looking for scale. I don't mm. know if we're going to see McDonald's all over podcasts yet. Um, in unique ways, because if they're advertising 99 cent nuggets, you know, you can reach just about anybody to buy 99 cent nuggets, right? Mm. But there also becomes this more targeted play and more authenticity. And I know that everything's going to get, get bigger and bigger, but I think some of that will stay mm. and we'll see where that goes. You've been listening to The Age of Audio with me, Graham Brown, from the award-winning podcast agency Pickle & Co. To get access to all the audio conversations and book content for The Age of Audio, go to www.theageofaudio.com 
One more time, theageofaudio.com. 